Strong voices. It's not just about one state. It's not just about one community. It's about all of our communities. The issues that face Indigenous peoples around the world sit at the heart of the questions that we're asking about the future of our political order. I am here and now, and I speak my language. I practice my cultural essence of me. What we do need is a more critical race consciousness in this country, a preparedness to talk about race, to talk about the way in which racialized logic are inscribed upon our bodies, and to critically examine them in order to change it. The government's changed, but we're going to be still here. We're always going to be still here. We've been here for 65,000 years, and I don't think we're going to go anywhere. What the system still struggles with is this collaboration with First Nations people. A strong voice is an Aboriginal voice. Welcome to Strong Voices, coming to you from the Calm Radio Studios on Arana Country in Central Australia and broadcasting through um, to all nations through Vast Channel 911 on Edkin FM, uh, Bundra Alice Springs, also via the Karma app and online at www.caama.com.au. Today is Thursday, the 25th of July, 2019. My name is Damien Williams. Coming up on today's program, we will hear from the press conference that was held at the Akilura Healing Centre about some much-needed funding they received from the NT Labor government. And then we will hear part two of Paul Wiles' chat with Luke Pearson on Digital X. And finally, we will hear a report from The Wire on the Indigenous Literary Foundation. We will also hear the latest in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from around the country. And uh, we'll be right back with more Strong Voices after this. Hey, this is Kathy Freeman. You're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. A new cultural centre to help strengthen and support local Aboriginal families will be built on central Arna country following a $5 million grant from the NT Labor government. Akilura was established by Aranda elders to support and promote Indigenous knowledge, practice and expertise, which is recognised as being integral to the well-being of the community. The centre allows people to both access and practice their culture and to be proud of their knowledge and identity. Today we are going to hear speeches from from uh, Akilura, which took place on Tuesday. We welcome all of you. We are happy to welcome so many people here this evening to honour the passing of very important Kilara elder and cultural leader to launch our new Bush Medicine story cards and to hear an important announcement about funding for Kilara. We would also like to remind families and guests that Akilara is a place for all Aranda people, all Aranda families, where people can gather together to heal and to practice and teach culture and keep language and culture strong. We have many different projects that we do. Ingandam, our Bush Schools program. Indorinj, 
our bush medicine program, Angorewam, our healing program, Maranganjagan, our language program, and Atwaria, our men's work program. All of what we do at Akilera is guided by our elders and is about keeping culture strong and healing families. As we continue uh, uh, legacy, it's about teaching the law of Arunda people, teaching uh, the language and the dance. Thank you, Dr. Teresa. And uh, again, I'd like to welcome everybody today to Akilura. And it's great to see, you know, a good crowd. I thought, and mostly to see our under families and friends that's always supporting Akilura all the time. And, you know, sometimes we have events here, and it's great to see a lot of Akilura friends. And I would like to welcome Minister Dale Wakefield to talk to you. Most of you would know Dale. She's the Minister for Territory Families and also a support for Women's Shelter Service in Central Australia and for Akilura. And it's great to welcome her here today to share some very exciting news with us. Thank you, Amelia. It's really um, is wonderful to be here. I was just thinking today before I drove over, I think one of the first meetings I went to when I moved to Alice Springs and was working in that ESWB job at Women's Shelter, I'm um, at NPY Women's Council, was an Achillea meeting. Um, and it's just um, about the healing centre. So it's really lovely to be here. I also might ask my colleague, Chancy Pape, to come up as well. He might want to say a few words as well. Um, because this is a project that both of us have been talking about and I know that Chancy's been talking about these issues much longer than I have, than 15 years. But um, I just was just having a look at those cards and it just really reminds me of what beautiful work Achillea does. Um, really important work, really thoughtful work. Um, when I was at the women's shelter, the women here were incredibly generous to help us to have a culturally safe space um, down the road, um, really supportive of making sure that people felt comfortable being there. I know when I became a politician, you had to do a big smoking job on that office of mine. Um, and that was, you know, just those really important moments throughout the, um, throughout my time in Alice Springs. Achille has been there um, often. So I'm very proud because I know there's been a lot of talking and now it's time for action. So um, tonight I'm announcing $5 million to build the Healing Centre. And it's in the bank. The $5 million is already in the bank so you can get on with it. So enough talking, action time. Um, we want to get rid of that building really quickly. Yeah. And it's a really nice time to do that because I think that um, I, I, I happened to come to a planning meeting a couple of weeks ago and see the plans and it's, it's so 
well thought through. It is just going to make a difference in strengthening culture in, in, and, and families in this town, which is really important because Achilles never shied away from the hard conversations. So this will give us an opportunity to do that in a proper building that reflects the respect that we should be giving our under country. So um, thank you. And I'm going to give Chansey a little opportunity. Still getting in trouble by my aunties. Um, look, it is great to be here today and um, it's very, very happy to be part of the government to make the announcement uh, with Dale. Uh, it's something that we have been very passionate about for some time and it's something that uh, Annie Amelia, Nana MK up the back and all the hard-working uh, ladies uh, and gentlemen who have given this everything that they've got. It's fantastic. Achilia is often... Uh, the organisation that you see as a tourist or a visitor to Alice Springs when you're at a conference, when you're at an important event uh, in Alice Springs. And it's so important to uh, honour and respect that. Uh, we are on Aranda country. We're extremely proud to be on Aranda country. And as an Aranda person myself, uh, I am so happy to be part of uh, a government that will listen and deliver that. So we have made that commitment. Um, and we're going to be here to support it every step of the way so that the place behind me uh, we can see as a place where families can come, be together, be strong, and where tourists can also come and share in just how beautiful uh, Aranda culture is. Uh, because one of the things we hear time and time again uh, in town and on the news is that we don't love our kids, we don't love our culture, we don't love our language and our law. And building a place like what we're committed to do is about changing that narrative in our town. It's about people understanding that uh, Aranda people, the traditional owners here in Mbantua, are beautiful people, have a beautiful culture, and love our kids, love our old people, love our community, and love our land. So um, the other part of why we invited people here today is a really exciting project that's another one that's been a long time in making. Um, so elders and other workers here at Aquila have sat together for many, many years to share stories about healing and bush medicine plants. And um, to keep that knowledge strong, we thought a really good thing to do would be to put all those stories together and Firstly, focusing just on the th three bush medicine plants that we work with um, and then adding to them over time, hopefully. So that's what we've done over the last couple of years. We've had great support from Bachelor, from um, Margaret Carew in particular, and now Ange Harrison um, to get this project um, funded and happening. And we had Fiona Walsh, who couldn't be here today, unfortunately, running a workshop with us to collect a lot of these stories. Um, many, many elders have been involved, and as Amelia mentioned and Teresa mentioned earlier, um, we sadly lost one of those really important women um, just a couple of months ago now and so people are still very sad about that and hurting but she was very strong in telling us that she wanted her stories and her images to still be in this publication, to be on our walls, um, to be out there for families to learn from. You know, she wanted her message and, her, and all her knowledge to be passed on and to keep culture strong and that teaching and learning which is a very much a part of what she did here um, to be kept strong so her legacy is definitely in these healing cards and you'll see when you have a look at them that um, she's got lots of stories through them and she's got um, lots of pictures of her doing work and teaching us about how to make these bush medicine plants so um, it's really exciting to have these 
cards finished now um, and we were hoping that we could get some of the ladies who have been involved to come and tell us a couple of the stories from these just so that you get a taste of what these cards have got in them. This is just a story what Michael wrote. It's about sing you better, sing the dog leg. My dad and uncle would sing you healing songs and make you better anything. Then they would sing the dog's leg so that they could run fast and chase kangaroo. Then we could hit the meat. So this is her story. But she's just talking about like the healing songs in relation to you know, the stories that she wrote. And it's good, you know, because the bush medicine she was using as well is the part of it. Thank you. That was some of the speeches and announcements made at the Akilura Scent Healing Center in Alice Springs this week. We'll be back with more Strong Voices after this. Hey, Mob. This is Patrick Johnson, and you're listening to Strong Voices. Be deadly and stay deadly. Yes, welcome back to Strong Voices. And now it is time for the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from around the country. And joining me in the studio, I have Kama's uh, Kyle Dowling. Kyle, good morning. Good morning, Damien, and good morning to uh, everyone across the country today. Great to be with you. Uh, now, we've got one story today talking a bit about oh, some some big news for Aboriginal media around the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, the First Nations media um Foundation has announced the new CEO. Yeah, that's right. Uh, the the peak national body for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander media, the First Nations Media Australia board, recently announced that uh, the appointment of Catherine Little as the new CEO of the First Nations Media Australia. So Catherine is actually going to be starting that role on the 14th of October of this year, 2019. There's going to be about sort of a, like a three-month handover period from the outgoing uh, general manager, Daniel Featherstone, who we've you know, spoken to quite a number of times over the years. Uh, so the First Nations Media Australia uh, chairperson, uh, Dot West, said that, uh, you know, thanked uh, Daniel Featherstone for his work as general manager and his, you know, dedication leadership all the way back from uh, 2012 uh, and actually overseeing the transition of the organisation when it was actually IRCA, the uh, Indigenous Remote Communications Association, which then became the uh, national peak body for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander media uh, in 2016. And they've also, of course, congratulated Catherine on her uh, successful appointment as the new CEO and have said that uh, Catherine brings extensive knowledge, uh, strong management experience and the uh, confidence of diplomacy to lead the First Nations Media Australia team and the sector going forward. Catherine is a uh, Arunda Lurich woman from Central Australia and uh, brings you know wealth of experience in First Nations media. She's currently the NPY Regional Director of Jarwin Indigenous Corporate Partnerships here in Alice Springs, and uh, where she's been helping uh, placement of three uh, secondees at uh, the First Nations Media Australia this year. She's also uh, you know stepped in as interim general manager of uh, ICTV for five months, and has worked uh, in a number of roles at NRTV as well as uh, Empire Television, ABC, SBS as well. Mm. So bringing a lot of experience to the space and, and Catherine did go on to say that, uh, you know, very honoured to have this opportunity to be in this position. 
Yeah, and it's um, going to be awesome to see what kind of uh, uh, direction um, Catherine will take and, and where she'll lead uh, First Nations media um, into the future, which is and it's uh, you know awesome to see um, sort of uh, new people coming in and, and, and taking those roles up. It's awesome to see. Uh, well, yeah, that concludes a strong... Um, not strong voices. Uh, Aboriginal news, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from around the country. Carl, thanks very much for coming in. Thanks, Damien. We'll be right back with more strong voices. Hi, my name's Alan Pedersen, and you're listening to Cam Radio. Strong voices on 18 FM. Over the years, Indigenous X has used the digital pra- platform to challenge stereotypes of Aboriginal communities, share stories, and offer a unique in- and engaging perspective in a space where Indigenous voices often remain unheard. Gamilroy man Luke Pearson founded Indigenous X in 2012. Yesterday, we heard the first part of Karma's Paul Wiles' chat with Mr. Pearson. We will hear the second part of that conversation now. A lot of what I was talking about was how media don't do a good job of reporting on Indigenous issues. You know, not enough Indigenous people telling our own stories, too many little boxes. At the end of the day, good or bad, like we, we need more spaces where we can tell our own stories on our own terms in whatever format that is, whether that's on radio, whether that's TV, whether that's print, whether that's social media, whatever it is. We can tell our own stories and we've got the tools to do it now. Social media really changed the game. It opened up, you know, so you didn't have to have a group of white fellas employ you to work in you know, you could just do it you create your own twitter account you create your own facebook page if enough people like what you say they'll follow you you grow an audience suddenly you're a voice and then it's like well what do you do with that platform because a lot of us who started it back then you know i think for a lot of young fellas now like they want to be a youtube star they want to be a facebook yeah that didn't exist <laughs> it didn't exist when i was doing it so no one was doing it to become famous we were just doing it because it was fun and because we wanted to and because we thought it mattered and so you know when i got to about five thousand followers i was like well i don't want to be that fellow who's speaking on behalf of Aboriginal women living under the intervention. This, you know, there's something fundamentally wrong with the platform I've built and what people want from me to be able to speak on behalf of all issues. And so the idea for Indigenous X was born out of that. Um, the, the account going to a different Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander person each week, you take the account, tell your own story, you're not speaking on behalf of all mob, you just speak as you. And then for those people who are following Aboriginal or, or non-Aboriginal people, you get to meet people you wouldn't otherwise hear from in the media. You wouldn't hear these people on the radio or TV. You wouldn't read an article from them in any newspaper because back when we started, no one really published opinion pieces from Aboriginal people. The Corey Mayo did, but even then it was a small category, like all the Australian would from Noel or Warren or a handful of others. But we sort of helped change that that space and, and shine a light on the fact that Australian media had really failed in that regard. And then when The Guardian came to Australia, they were a bit wary of how they were going to go with Indigenous affairs coming over from the UK. So they reached out, formed a partnership. Now every host gets to write an article for The Guardian. That made us realise, you know, we were doing stuff that really mattered and that helped elevate us. Created my own website off the back of that. And so now here I am as a a failed primary teacher turned CEO of... (laughs) A two-man show, you know, CEO is probably a bit of a stretch, but running a business that that I think matters and, and I get to do something that I think matters for a living. The country's national broadcaster, mm. the ABC, 
wants to be more inclusive of mm-hmm. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. How have you seen that journey for the ABC and how relevant is it? Mm. I think they've been kicking some really big goals with the TV stuff. You know, black comedy, you know, the, the last time before black comedy that we had an Aboriginal sketch comedy show that actually, you know, was, was out there and doing well was um, basically black in the 70s. So, you know, the fact that we had a 40-year gap um, between sketch comedy shows and, and you know, the, the scripted stuff they're doing is, is really good. You know, the news, the online, the radio stuff, there's some really solid people who fit in that space and I think for for me I didn't have the best experience at the ABC but I think there were people within the ABC who wanted to push the boundaries and wanted to mix things up a bit you know new media more commentary more things that aren't sort of the ABC's traditional background and so while there were some people in it who were really excited about people like me coming in there were other people who are more the traditional abc people who didn't and i I think their eyes were bigger than their stomach with me they they saw me over at nitv they saw me with indigenous excellence we need we need luke over here let's let's you know get him to come across and i was excited to learn more radio skills and do more things but we just never worked out how the jigsaw pieces fit so i kind of ended up just sitting on a shelf not sure what I should be doing. People weren't sure what they should be getting me to do. So, you know, I helped a lot of people out with their stories. I, I got to write, you know, maybe a dozen stories in like the 18 months I was there, which is a very low output in that sort of role. I dabbled in radio, but I was never really confident in it. So it just didn't fit. And, and like I said, I, I don't necessarily blame anyone or anything for that it, other than, yeah, I I didn't fit. <laughs> um Having experienced that and worked at NITV and your online um, Twitter account, you've obviously been in the space for some time now. Mm. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander media as an entity from a Mm. national perspective, how do you see it sitting and what needs to happen? I'm really just the last year or two getting a much better understanding because I said I I came in a very non-traditional pathway into media via Twitter. I'm one of the first people who had moved into media from social media. And so it took me a long time to actually really appreciate just how strong that history is. You know, like Karma's coming up on 40 years. I didn't know, like, I've never lived out here. I didn't know that Karma was a thing. Uh, And, you know, I just didn't. Like, and so, you know, learning the strength and the history and, and how important it's been for so many essential services, for so many communities as their sort of eyes into the world, but also... Yeah, the frustration I think a lot of them feel when, you know, we'll we'll break a story, mainstream media pick it up. They don't credit where that story come from. So, you know, the the opportunities to have celebrated Indigenous media in Australia, I think, have really been overlooked. Um, You know, I think we've all experienced that, having our stories picked up national. And then you're sitting there going, hey, we actually did that. You know, even the Corey Mail are going through that at the moment. You know, they sort of put the flag story on the map. Not many people acknowledge they did, though. Even you guys did a really big interview with Harold that you're not getting that credit for. So I think there's still a lot that needs to be done in getting the recognition and and being seen as peers with the rest of Australian media. You know what I mean? Like if Channel 9 break a story and ABC cover it, they'll usually say as broken by. We very rarely get that acknowledgement. So I think we're still sort of seen as easy to dismiss, easy to ignore in in bigger conversations until, like I said, we break something, then they just take it. They don't come to talk to us about it. As one of the, the sort of few media spaces that for a long time it was just me 
with Indigenous Sex, a lot of people helping out, but in terms of as a business, like I own it, it's mine. Um, we, we aren't funded. Um, we don't have those those relationships or those dynamics where I don't have to worry about saying things about government because if they don't like it, tough luck. They can't. They, I don't have anything they can take from me um, is the simplest way to say it. So, you know, as, and I think this is true for the you know, Aboriginal sector uh, across the board, like the more self-determining we can be, um, and that either comes through having a different relationship with government or not being reliant on government, not, not being at the whims of, and, and just the limitations, you know, 12 months, two year, three year funding cycles, like it's no way to live, there's no way to plan for the future around that, but it's also government's never going to do anything different because they can't, because they work on election cycles. So just going back to uh, that issue around um, Aboriginal leaders, I mean, uh, you grew up in, in the 80s, but if we go back to the 70s where the, the movement really kicked off with the Tend Embassy and uh, some of those pioneers, um, Gary Foley of course is still a household name across the country, mm-hmm. Gilar Michael Anderson, one of mm. the um, Tend Embassy, Michael Mansell, uh, mm-hmm. although he was in Tasmania, but uh, what has happened since the 70s that the fire in the belly has subsided? I, I don't think the fire in the belly has subsided in, in any way, shape or form. I think there are more pathways open i think there are bigger divides between you know different individuals different communities different personalities like even going back before the 70s like in the you know we've been protesting in one form or another since pemaway and onwards you know um but for those mob like when you had your outspoken passionate leaders yeah, you know, and those those staunch people who had that that vision and that drive and that passion, they invariably led protest groups and collectives, and you know the Progressives Association, yeah, you know, whatever it was, because there was nothing else. Whereas now, even talking about like that Indigenous youth leadership stuff, like the the push to go into mainstream and that that moral of like if you want to make change, you do it from inside the system. Is, is one that's very heavily mm. enforced on people. And, and in fairness, people, you know, who grow up with capacity and ability, like, nothing wrong with them thinking, like, I want to make a decent dollar to support my family and to, to have a good life. Like, that stuff just wasn't an option back in the day. So, of course, you found yourself in the union systems, in the activist systems, in the protest spaces, because you were protesting for those basic opportunities. And now that people are pulled in more directions... You know, more more cliques starting up, more more different camps starting up. It, it's not that the fire is not there, but where where you direct that fire, I think, has become harder to pinpoint for a lot of people. So a lot of people get caught up in hopelessness, but a lot of people, you know, chase chase pathways that wherever they're at at that time of life, they think that's the best pathway for themselves, for for their people, for their family. Um, and you know, like I said, for me. Yeah, you know, I, I was one who was very much of, of that model growing up. It's like if if you want to make change, you do it from in the system and you rise within the system, and then you make change. And I'm not sure that I necessarily believe in that um, anymore. But at the same time, I do want mob working in those systems. I want Aboriginal teachers and doctors and lawyers and politicians. And like, I believe that we need to be there. But I also know a lot of those people and how much they struggle to make change internally and how hard it is 
mm. um, to affect change in meaningful ways. So, like I said, it's not that that fire is not there anymore. And, and we do have a lot of young activists who are out there. And, and for the first time in recent years for us since, you know, the Foley's and that who, you know, like Bob Mazza turning up on Play School and because they were in the emerging Aboriginal theatre space as well as the activism space. And we're starting to see that again now with like Nayuka on Black Comedy is also you know, a very staunch, outspoken advocate. And, and so we, we're seeing that come back into the fray where it's like to be outspoken, you don't have to be entirely outside the system, but you also don't have to be entirely inside it either. Mm-hmm. And you can kind of develop your own relationship to find ways to speak truth to power. And and it's a struggle and it's a hard balance to find. You know, even running Indigenous X, like, we work with different organisations, but we'll also speak out against different organisations or different government. And it's like, we're not easy to pigeonhole into this is what we are or this is what we do. And I like that about us. I like that, you know, we don't have to align ourselves to anyone, but we will collaborate with anyone if we think there's benefit in that we're at a really new stage of the world like the internet the you know climate change knocking on the door um i think it would be really harsh to judge the the younger generations as to say they don't have fire but how they come together to affect change is a big challenge the journey to self-determination or assimilation who's winning (laughs) (laughs) um Oh, God, I think, you know, with Liberal getting back in, it's hard to say that we're winning with watching um, so many of our organisations struggle for, for funding or having to, you know, negotiate in these spaces. It, it's hard to say that self-determination is winning. But, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer in, you know, keep hope alive. <laughs> like, the the hope, the passion, the drive is still out there. And, you know, different mob are affecting change internally in different ways and i don't want to, to belittle the the sacrifices they make and like how hard it is to exist mm. in those institutions and slowly but subtly make those changes um but at the same time there's a lot of mob who who don't survive in those institutions who you know like me you know, spend more time at uni to get the job than you spend in the job and and feel that you know, they, they didn't have space for you there. So, you know, whether we're decolonising or whether they're assimilating is is very case-by-case, industry-by-industry, job-by-job. Are you confident for the future? It's been a 230-year journey, um, which in terms of time for the mob is a very small glitch. Mm. But where do you see it going? Uh, I think white followers have gotten very good at patting themselves on the back about doing nothing. Uh, <laughs> when, when I talk to a lot of people, and but we get better aren't we and it's like well you know you might not have like those overt laws like because it wasn't so long ago that you know the laws were amazingly overtly racist but you're still kind of doing the same things while flying our flags out the front of your buildings and you know like you're changing the these laws but you still seem to find ways to lock more people up and take more kids and bring in more things like the intervention so i was like are you are we getting better like yeah, and, and where we're putting our, our sights on for goals, like, you know, recently talking about, like, when are we going to have an Aboriginal Prime Minister? So I don't care, like, when because like, I don't think that's going to, that's not the change I'm looking for. We're looking for those collective empowerment, you know, self-determination, like those those who are at the bottom not 
being on the bottom anymore. It's not having one individual at the top of some broken system and, and celebrating that as, as, a, as an achievement. Um, so I think in many ways what the outcomes looked like back then were easier. Like you've got a law that says Aboriginal kids can't swim in the swimming pool. Well, let them swim in the swimming pool. <laughs> like that's, that's tangible, whereas now... You're fighting against people like, no, but we're the good guys. And it's like, no, you're not. Like, you might have a rap, you might have whatever. But like I said, so many of those tangible outcomes are still, we're still failing so miserably at. Or Australia is failing Indigenous people miserably at is probably a better way to say it. So, yeah, but I I think as long as, you know, we have that fire in the belly, there's hope. As long as... You know, there are people willing to to make those sacrifices and fight that good fight. So I wouldn't say I'm optimistic because I live in the same world you live. If you're looking around today going, everything's great, (laughs) you're not not paying attention. But at the same time, I am seeing more and more collaborations, more and more connections, more people finding new ways to do things differently, to challenge the status quo. There's room for hope and, and there is hope out there. And I know that a lot of mob don't get to see that. And, and that's not a part of their day-to-day life. And I think, you know, we, we can't forget that. You know, like, there's a lot to be cynical about, man. There's a lot to be angry about. There's a lot to be upset about. But anyone, anywhere, no matter how tough mob are doing, there's still reasons to laugh and reasons to sing and reasons to hug your kids. And, you know, you don't need a reason. Like, you know, there's love, there's there's hope, there's joy. And and the more opportunities we can get to support that and, and to develop that. Because for me, in, in the work that I do in media, like, man, the moment I come to you and I say, there is no hope, then I need to get out of the way for someone younger and more hopeful than me. Um, so even though I might not be optimistic, I am still eternally hopeful. Luke Pearson, thanks for your time. Thank you. That was founder of Indigenous X, Luke Pearson, ending that report from Karma's Paul Wiles. We'll be right back with more Strong Voices after this. I can see- This is Dawn Fraser, and you're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. When it comes to literacy, First Nations children are still falling behind non-Indigenous children. That is why the Indigenous Literacy Foundation, a national book industry charity, which aims to reduce the disadvantage experienced by children in remote Aboriginal communities across the country and lift the literacy levels for these communities and one of these way, one of the ways in which they are making a difference is through the Indigenous Literacy, Literary Foundation Ambassadors Program. The Wires Roderick Chambers speaks with mentor mentor of the school children ambassadors and former ambassador Lachlan Coman about the program. So I first came into contact with the Indigenous Literacy Foundation when I was in when I was 11 in year 6. I had developed a relationship with a remote indigenous community called Juntunjara, which is in the Great Victoria Desert. And after a while I was invited to visit the community. And so with the help of the Indigenous Literacy Foundation I was able to raise money and provide three huge boxes of beautiful books for the community library, which was very well received and it was a fantastic, fantastic trip. Now, tell us a bit about the Indigenous Literary Foundation itself. It, it's, uh, how is it helping uh, Indigenous kids? So the Indigenous Literacy Foundation is a not-for-profit organisation and it receives no government funding whatsoever. 
And essentially, the, the central aim of the foundation is to help close the gap in Indigenous literacy levels in Australia. And it might shock many of your listeners to hear that Year 5 students, in, Indigenous students in very remote communities, in the Northern Territory, only 18% of them reach the minimum literacy standard, whereas their non-Indigenous uh, urban counterparts, 96% of them reach the minimum literacy standard. So... There's a clear divide between Indigenous and non-Indigenous students in Australia and uh, location, so isolation has a lot to do with it. So the ILS, through its numerous programs, aims to help close that gap, mainly by providing books and resources to the communities, but also by running community literacy programs, which involve writing, workshops and publication of local stories. And you've got a number of ambassadors, which I presume are from all, all over Australia, are they? Yeah, so we're fortunate this year to have our second year of the Student Ambassador Program, and we have seven students from around Australia. I think we cover three states, and we have Indigenous and non-Indigenous student ambassadors, which is wonderful as well. Um, They're aged between year six to year 12, so we have quite a wide range of, of students, and it's really wonderful because essentially they are assisting the Indigenous Literacy Foundation in closing the gap between non-Indigenous and Indigenous students from the students' perspective. And it's great to have students supporting students. Right. So they would they take particular area or particular schools or how does it work uh, in the way that they interact? Well, the students represent their schools first and foremost, but also act as ambassadors for the community. So a few key roles that they have is to help raise awareness and funds in their own schools but also to reach out to schools in their local community. And that can also include public libraries, sporting clubs, local businesses and workplaces. And their, their role is to provide a young face for the Indigenous Literacy Foundation and help spread the message as much as we can to as many people as we can. So, I mean, that that's uh, no s- small feat in itself to be able to to talk to all these different groups and people because, you know, public speaking isn't easy, is it? No, it's certainly not easy, and it's certainly something that you learn over time, but I've been blown away by the student ambassadors that we have. They're all wonderfully articulate young people. They're very good at speaking to people and very good at advocating for the ILS, and I don't think we could be any luckier with the student ambassadors that we have. And do you find that you get two people and they haven't picked up a book, they haven't read a, a book all the way through or something, and then they get to that moment where they're actually enjoying it? What does that feel like? It's wonderful. It reminds me of a time when I was in uh, Jundranjara with the Indigenous Literacy Foundation, so a first a few years after my first visit, and the ILS had come along with some books for the community, and we had this wonderful evening under the stars in the school, and we'd made up some food and some fire pits in the schoolyard. And basically everyone was sitting around reading books and enjoying them. And it was a wonderful event because um, many Indigenous uh, people don't have books in their home. And the first time people come into contact with books is actually at school. So these students were able to bring books home, uh, show them to their parents and to their families and enjoy the gift of reading altogether. And it was really a wonderful event. It was just the, the collection of a community enjoying literacy, and it was fantastic. And, Lockie, tell us a bit about the event that you're having on the 4th of September. So the major fundraising event that the Indigenous Literacy Foundation runs is called the Great Book Swap, 
And that occurs on Indigenous Literacy Day, which this year is on the 4th of September. And all you have to do is bring along a book and a gold coin donation to the ILF and swap your book with someone else's. And that way you can make a donation to the foundation, you can pass on the love of a book that you've already enjoyed, and also take home a new book to read and enjoy. So it's a wonderful event. We'd encourage as many people as possible to run one in their own communities. And Indigenous Literacy Day is on the 4th of September. So you can hold your great books up on that day or any other day. But we'd really love to have your support. That was a report by The Wire's Roderick Chambers on the Indigenous Literary Foundation. That's all the time we have for Strong Voices today. Um, Hope you uh, have a wonderful day.